This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning, Trinity. It's good to be with you. We're continuing our sermon series in Zechariah, the Old Testament prophet, near the end of the Old Testament. Um, and, you know, in, in Zechariah's time, you could almost imagine uh, people singing worship songs. They almost certainly came from the book of Psalms. Uh, and I bet you, you could imagine them too, sounding, uh, as they're singing them, feeling a little bit hollow. Like they're singing about all of these promises and all these great actions that God can do, and yet they're wondering whether or not He still does them. I wonder if you've ever felt the same. There's one song where uh, sometimes this tends to happen with me, and I'll, I'll share it with you if you know the song Waymaker by Sanak. You are here moving in our midst. I worship you. I worship you. You are here working in this place. I worship you. I worship you. But the part that gets me is even when we don't see it, is God still working? Even when we don't feel it, is God still working? And there's been many times in my life where I've sung the words of this song and I felt a little bit hollow inside, like those promises don't ring quite true. I know we're declaring something that the Bible says, and yet in my life, it's not something that I tend to feel. If I don't see or feel God working, how do I know that He never stops, never stops working? The people in Zechariah's day were in very much uh, a similar position. Uh, but to understand it, again, we need a quick history lesson. Israel was never a powerful nation, but in the days of great King David's grandson, they had a civil war, and there was a northern kingdom and there was a southern kingdom. And about 200 years later, the Assyrians would come and they would decimate the northern kingdom, totally scatter them, tear everything down, it was done. About 100 years after that, the Babylonians would come for the southern kingdom. They would take the people so that they would live as foreigners and subjugated people in a foreign land, and then they would destroy the temple brick by brick and the wall. Now, when the Persians came, defeated the Babylonians, the Persians let the Jews return to Israel. So they returned to the southern kingdom, and they were trying to rebuild uh, their temple and their walls. But it wasn't going well. They were under-resourced, and they were surrounded by enemies. They were not making great progress. In many ways, in Zechariah's day, things were getting worse for God's people, not better. Worse than subjugation in a foreign land, because at least there they had protection and security. At least there they had food and water. They didn't have to sleep in tents exposed to the elements, wild animals, and surrounding regional warlords while they were reconstructing a city that was destroyed by the Babylonians. To a regular Jew in Zechariah's day, to say, even though you don't see God working, he's working, would sound a little bit hollow. Zechariah's job as a prophet was to tell people that God is still working and to teach them how they might see and how they might feel God working. And from our passage today, we're going to see that they needed to change their perspective about three things. In three areas, their perspective needed to change in order to see God working. The location of the kingdom, the true enemy of the kingdom, and who the citizens of the kingdom actually are. These are going to be our three points this morning, because just like God's people, 2,500 years ago, in order to see God working, we need to change our perspective in the same way. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. It comes from Zechariah chapter 2. Just a small note here before I start. Um, what is printed in your bulletin is uh, the NIV. 
which is one of the translations, uh, English translations that we have. But I'll be reading from the ESV, which is more normal for us to read from. It was just a copy error in your bulletin. But if the words sound different, uh, you know, just recognize that that's what's happening. And as a small note there, it's a good reminder that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and we translate it into English. And so there are translation choices that we make, and the differences there uh, help us actually understand the text better. So as you see the differences as I read along, I hope that that helps clarify some of the meaning in the text. So starting in Zechariah chapter 2, verse 1. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell in the, with the daughter of Babylon. For thus said the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the holy land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. This ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. So in order to see God working in the world, to feel him working, we're going to need our perspective to change in three areas. And the first one is the location of God's kingdom. Uh, I've recently been watching a show about like a, a, imagining what a post-apocalyptic life would be like. And I don't know if you've ever seen shows like these, but one thing that always stands out for me uh, is the use of walls in like our urban, sitting, uh, uh, urban setting areas, right? They like tip over semis or whatever, block off streets to make sure that they have walls and gates. Walled cities and communities help protect those people in these shows from raiders or from zombies or for whatever else is attacking them, right? They need the walls for protection. And many of us inherently understand the necessity for walls. I think many of us probably lived in closed, walled urbanizations here in Puerto Rico. If we don't, we probably have a fence or wall that defines our property line. But despite our inherent understanding of walls, most of us probably grew up in cities without walls, right? And in the span of human history, that is a relatively new phenomenon. Most cities throughout history have been required to have walls to protect themselves from things that were without. Jerusalem didn't have any walls in Zechariah's day, and it was not a good thing. They were vulnerable to whatever enemies passed by, and they were desperately trying to rebuild it and protect themselves from their enemies, to protect what was theirs from those who would try to take it. And so, if you were hearing Zechariah's prophecy for the first time, you probably would have been very encouraged by verses 1 and 2. Look at this vision. He sees this man with a measuring line in his hand, and then he says, where are you going? And this man responds, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. 
And the kind of measuring that they're doing there is to define the boundaries of the city in order to build a wall. At the end of this section, you'll see God describe himself as a wall of fire to them, right? So the goal here was to measure the city, define its boundaries, so that they could build a wall and get, what they, uh, get the protection that they needed. And I'm sure that people in Zechariah's day would have said, that's when I know God is working. I will know God is working when I see the physical walls being built because that is how he's going to protect me. But God does something surprising in verse 4. He stops the man in the vision who was supposed to be doing the construction. Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls. Why? Because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. What God is saying is that walls are going to be insufficient because whatever walls you build aren't big enough. I need all of the space that there is. I need all of creation to be mine. I am bringing so many people and so many livestock and all of creation is coming again underneath my rule and whatever walls you build are insufficient. He continues this explanation in verse 5, I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. What this would have meant for Zechariah's people is that God was not just going to defeat the Persians or their local warlords that were threatening them around in the ancient Near East, God was going to defeat every single enemy there ever was. And he was going to look at all of creation, the entire earth, and say, it's mine. My rule will be firmly established. The location of my kingdom cannot be bound in by physical walls and structure. Everything is mine. Everything belongs to me. So here's the problem with the Israelites' perspective. They wanted something they could trust, something physical, something they could touch, something that offered them protection. And God was asking them to trust someone. The Israelites wanted what God could give them, not what God, not God himself. I think we're the same way. We don't want to trust God himself, but we want to trust in the stuff that God can give us. We say, God, I know when you're going to be working. How I'll know that you're going to be working in my life is when you provide me the things that I need to live my life. We want God to give us money so that we can feel secure. We want God to give us governments that we can trust in. We want God to give us property that we can defend. We want God to give us our own kingdoms. We don't believe that God is working in the world because we don't see God working to construct our own kingdoms. God isn't here to build your kingdom. He's here to build his. But I've got good news. His kingdom is the one that you actually want. Think about what God is saying. He's like, you want to build walls? You know what walls are for? Protecting yourself from enemies. You're assuming that there's going to be enemies forever in your future? That you're always going to need protection from something from the outside? But I'm offering you something better than a wall made with hands. I'm offering you my very presence, a wall of fire like I did um, when my people left Egypt and I protected them from Pharaoh. I will be the glory in your midst. There will be no more enemies. But this brings us to our second point, because not only does the location matter, we can't shrink God's kingdom to be just simply one regional aspect, but it is the whole world. But In order to understand the impact that this kingdom is going to have, we have to understand who the enemy actually is. 
You see, in verses 7 through 8, God has just described Israel as dwelling with the daughter of Babylon. And the daughter of Babylon, the the big um, empire that followed Babylon, was Persia. So he's referencing Persia here. And at first glance, it seems that God is telling them to get up and flee, to escape. And I think if we were to read through this, like we'd probably assume that they're fleeing and escaping the Persians, as if they're afraid of the Persians, the daughter of Babylon. But they aren't supposed to flee because they're afraid of the Persians. They're supposed to flee because God is about to execute his judgment upon the Persians. The Persians aren't really worth fearing. God is. Look at verse 9. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. The, the image there that they're using is the shaking of hand like this. You can imagine a king on his throne like, yeah, yeah, just do it. This isn't hard work for God. It's a shake of a hand from his throne. I remember last week we talked about uh, one of his first visions, and we talked about these horsemen, and they're kind of meeting in this um, glen that's not in a palace, and we wondered whether or not God's agents were actually going to be able to do anything. And here we get to see that God's agents will absolutely do something. With a wave of his hand, his horsemen will grow forth, and the apocalypse, as we call it, will happen. The harvest will come. That's all it takes. God's authority has not been dwarfed at all by the Persians or by the Romans or by any empire that has ever come. It all belongs to him. Everybody's just pretending to have their own little kingdoms. Zechariah's people thought that earthly nations were their true enemy. But their true enemy in some sense was far worse than Assyria, Babylon, or the Persians. And God promised that he was going to take care of this true enemy. See, the true enemy wasn't just without their walls, but it was also within. It had deeply infiltrated their ranks. Look at verses 10 and 11. See, when God came, they were supposed to sing and rejoice when God came to dwell with them, when nations came and joined themselves to God. But do you know why God's presence wasn't in Israel anymore? Do you know why he didn't dwell with them? Do you know why his presence left? Because of the rebellion and disobedience of his people. The primary problem that God left was not because he was afraid of the Persians or afraid of the Babylonians or afraid of the Assyrians. God was afraid that his holiness would consume his people if he stayed any longer. His people needed transformed from the inside out. They needed the weeds of sin pulled out from their lives. They needed their hearts of stone to be transformed into hearts of flesh. The real enemy isn't out there. The real enemy is in here. And we cannot make the mistake of thinking that sin, in whatever form, ought to be allowed to continue within us. The real problem facing the Christian church is not everyone else out there. The real problem facing the Christian church is within. The disobedience and rebellion against God by his own people, and you and I play the part. It's why every single week we come together to confess our sin together, individually and corporately, to recognize that we need Jesus. If we start to believe that the real problem with the world only exists outside of this or in other people or in other nations or other political parties, we start to believe that we are some sort of savior, that we have the right answer, that our opinion about how the world works is how it should work. We're not the rulers of this kingdom. There's one ruler of this kingdom. 
In some sense, the greatest enemy that we have is the one who sowed sin in our own hearts, the one who broke into the garden and deceived Adam and Eve. But with a wave of his hand, God will handle this greatest enemy. Satan tempted us to sin, and the fruit of sin is death, but Jesus, Jesus defeated death. O death, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? The real enemy already has a mortal wound and will one day be taken care of completely by God himself. But the actions of the real enemy are still at play in the world and in our hearts. You need Jesus just as much as the rest of the world. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying here that that you are the enemy. When we have united ourselves to Jesus, uh, what he has said is, I have covered every sin by my blood, and it is sufficient for you. And yet, when we read Paul describe how sin continues to work itself out in its life, he's like, I do the things I do not want to do. And I spend the rest of my life fighting this enemy that exists within that Christ has already promised to remove fully one day so that I might look more and more like Jesus every single day. If you want to see God working, if you want to see Jesus working, the first place you need to look is not outside in the world, but inside and say, God, work in me. Make me more like Jesus. Remove this sin from me that I've struggled day in and day out for years. Now, if you're thinking right now, you're not sure that you have any roots of sin sprouting in your life, most of us are oblivious. Uh, If you're working in the garden, you know, uh, the plants that you want to grow uh, and then weeds often sprout the same. And the Bible kind of describes sin this way. You You can't tell, but you'll know the tree by its fruit, right? And we need God's word. The only thing that's going to tell us what good fruit is and what bad fruit is, is God's word. We need God's Holy Spirit in order to root out and remove those trees that bear bad fruit in our lives and to plant and uh, fertilize and grow uh, those, those trees that bear good fruit, that are pleasing in his sight. In order to see God working, we not only need to understand that the location of God's kingdom is all of creation, we also need to understand that the primary problem is within us. And this brings us to our third point. The next perspective shift that we need is who the citizens of the kingdom will actually be. I'm going to try to summarize it this way in kind of our our points, right? These are kind of the questions that Zechariah's audience would have been asking. Why isn't God building the walls? And the answer was, God is building a worldwide kingdom that cannot be contained by walls. The next question might be, does God know who the real enemies are and can he handle them? Of course God knows who the real enemies are. It seems to be that we're the ones who don't. (laughs) It's not the Persians, the Babylonians, or the Romans. God would defeat the greatest enemy that we ever had. Then the third question, if this is all true, then why doesn't God just make all sin, pain, and suffering stop right now? Why isn't the apocalypse here? Why haven't the four horsemen gone forth? As we read about the horsemen last week in Zechariah's vision that Revelation will borrow from later. Here's God's answer. Not only in verse 4 did he say that there's going to be more people than you could possibly imagine, but in verse 11 he said that it wasn't exclusively going to be Jewish people either. He said that this city, my kingdom, would be made up of all of the nations, and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. 
the explanation that we consistently get throughout all of Scripture in the Old Testament and the New for why the Lord tarries, is the, is the language we use, but why the Lord waits to bring His final judgment and why He allows us to go on is because He is bringing more people into His kingdom. Now, His church, His people, the Old Testament saints, they experience forms of suffering now. But because they are the apple of his eye, he will avenge them fearfully when the time is right. That's in verse 8. But right now, we're supposed to see God working and how he brings the nations to himself. And I've got to be honest, sometimes this is really hard to see because it doesn't necessarily feel like the church is growing in the United States right now. Uh, it feels like the church is being stomped out slowly but surely. Now, of course, if we were to zoom out of our own little kingdoms, and look at the whole world, we would say that God's church is growing exponentially. But if I can, I'll just focus in the United States and Puerto Rico here. Even here, even if the church is shrinking numerically, do you think that there is no one that is not turning their lives to Jesus? And no matter what amount of suffering we would experience, isn't that one person worth it? It's worth it, right? Can I put it this way? Although I hope that all of us can evangelize more than just one person, wouldn't that one person be worth whatever cost we paid? Isn't the salvation of one soul enough for us to even lose our very lives as we follow after Jesus? Of course, we don't save people. Only Jesus does. But if we could be an agent that points even one person towards belief in him, it would be a life well lived. And I think by God's grace, our Christian lives impact far more than just one person. It's part of the reason that we do church together is that we might impact each other and point one another to Jesus. If you understand just how big the kingdom is and you understand who the real enemy is, then you start looking at people in the world in a whole new way. They are not inconveniences to get around. They're not something to be exploited for work or for gain. They're not to be ignored. They're not to be manipulated for your own ends. They're not to be enemies to be battled and defeated. They are potential citizens of the kingdom of God. In order to see God at work, we're going to have to change our perspective on who the citizens of his kingdom actually are. Right now, our culture uh, is embracing a lot of sin, a lot of disobedience and rebellion against God. To be clear, we've always been sinners. We've always needed Jesus every single hour of every single day. But we see it in a particular light now. And the embracing of this disobedience and rebellion against God will have its own consequences. As God mentions, he will be rousing himself from his throne. And when the day comes, there will be an account given. And of course, there's a sadness that comes with this. And maybe even an anger. Man. The kids are shouting for Jesus. I was wondering, I'm like, do I need to stop? What's going on here? It is. It's... They're doing great. No, I'm going to keep going. <clears throat> I can ignore it. It's only when it's really my own kids, they stand out in my head. Almost every, if your kids are ever crying in service, just, just a note. Uh, I can block almost anything out except for my own kids. When it's my own kids, it's just like everything stops in my brain. So don't, don't feel bad if there's noises there. Um, but I just want to acknowledge that everything was okay. There wasn't something that we needed to handle. So, of course, our culture is embracing sin in a particular way, and that may make us scared or fearful or even angry about how it, how it trips us to sin or causes our children to sin in particular ways. But the perspective change that we need is that the nations in our culture are not our real enemies. 
They're our mission field. What if we stopped looking at all the people in our culture with anger as our enemies to be defeated, but as potential citizens of a greater kingdom? Do you think that would change the way that you would interact with them? Do you think you might interact with them a little bit more like Jesus does? What if we saw ourselves as emissaries of the most powerful nation on earth that can never and will never be defeated? To be sure, other lesser nations may mistreat us, despise us, jail us, mock us. They may give us unfair trials and obscure justice and malign our character, but our God and our King will never fail to execute His justice, and He will never fail to resurrect us even from the dead. We don't interact with the nations in spite or in anger or even in fear. In some sense, we act with a bold confidence, and we act always as we should because we have nothing to fear but everything to offer. We have a free invitation even to our enemies, that there is a better way. A way without the weeds of the world that sprout up and choke out life. A way that isn't blinded by our shared enemy. A way that leads to living in a worldwide city without walls. A city defended by a wall of fire where the presence of God is himself. Now, of course, the world may not listen, but that shouldn't really surprise us. They didn't listen to Jesus. He's a much better evangelist than you or I are, I promise. We know that all people, even the worst people inside of God's economy, will always get a fair trial. And that actually should cause us a moment of pause. Look at verse 13. Be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. When God rouses himself from his holy dwelling, it is as if the command is being given. The harvest is here, and there is silence from all flesh, because all flesh, every single one of us, understands that none of us can stand in the day of judgment. None of us have what it takes. We've all failed. We've all capitulated to the enemy. We've tried to build our own little mud brick walls to try to protect ourselves. We have constantly chosen ourselves over God and his kingdom. We have failed to root out all of our sin. We have made enemies out of God's children. So when we see God working, rousing himself from his holy throne, it should cause us a holy silence. If you look at verses 9 through 11, you'll see this angel kind of repeat this phrase a number of times. He says that when you see these things happen, you will know that God has sent me. When you see a worldwide kingdom without borders established, when you see your greatest and most true enemy defeated, and when you see the nations come together under one banner, then you will know God is working. And brothers and sisters, this is what happened when God came to us. When Jesus Christ came, this is what he did. He inaugurated a kingdom without borders by his body and his blood. He defeated our greatest and most true enemy by his body in his blood, and he broke down the dividing wall of hostility that exists between us by his body and his blood. And do you know where he is doing this work now? In his church. The church is worldwide, even in the face of extreme local persecution. People are repenting of their sins and turning their lives from uh, lives of an enemy of God's kingdom to lives of a good citizen, living lives that bear fruit. In the church, God is uniting those who have been separated by years and generations of hatred. 
In the church, God removes all dividing walls of hostility to create a unity that is found under the banner of Jesus Christ alone. When God roused himself and came down to earth in the man Jesus Christ, a holy and awesome thing happened. God came to dwell in our midst. And for that, we sang and we rejoiced like we did on Palm Sunday when he came into Jerusalem humble and riding on a donkey. They said, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Many nations came and joined themselves to him, not just the Jewish nation, but also foreigners. And we sang his praises. And when judgment came, when salvation came, when judgment came upon Jesus, God's very son, we were silenced by how great a salvation has been offered because he experienced the judgment we should have. If you want to see God working, if you want to feel him working in the world, your perspective is going to have to change. And it's going to have to be fully focused on Jesus and his fulfillment of every Old Testament prophecy how he shifts the landscape of our understanding of what a kingdom really is, its location, its enemies, even its citizens. And I promise, focusing upon Jesus, he has not stopped working, but is working even today, even among us, even in this room and all across the world, wherever people who praise his name can be found. I mentioned last week, that although we don't read Jesus back into the Old Testament, the Old Testament is fundamentally and all about Jesus. Uh, Jesus says this himself. He says uh, that if you did not listen to the Old Testament prophets, you won't listen to what I have to say either. The Old Testament prophets are saying the exact same things that I am saying. It is his body and his blood that inaugurated the church. It is his body and his blood that provided defeat over the enemy and an opportunity for us to repent of our sins and turn unto everlasting life. It is his body and his blood that creates citizens, that breaks down dividing walls of hostility among us so that we might be unified at this table. This is what we declare when we come to partake of this body and, and, and this, uh, his body and his blood here through this bread and juice. Jesus said, take this eat it. This is my body for you. Take this, drink it. This is my cup for you. The night that Jesus was betrayed, when his disciples rejected him, he took bread and having blessed it, he broke it and he turned and he gave it to his disciples as I am ministering his name, now give it to you. And Jesus said to them, take this bread and eat it. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after he had blessed it and given thanks, he said to his disciples, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you for the remission of the sins of many. Take and drink. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man, that he is the one who fulfilled all Old Testament prophecies, that his kingdom is better than the little kingdom that you're trying to build yourself, if you think that his citizens are worth it, and you find joy in turning from your sin unto, and repentance unto new life. This table is for you. If you're not a Christian, if you've not united yourself to Jesus in baptism, we would ask that you not partake of this meal, uh, not because we don't want you here or we don't think you belong, uh, but because Jesus himself gives a warning in 1 Corinthians uh, that eating and drinking uh, of this in an outward action that's not an inward reality can be physically dangerous for you. 
Uh, this is not simply um, token memorialism here, uh, but we believe that Jesus has invested it and he meets his people here. And so we'd ask you not to partake of it this morning, but please uh, talk to me or Kyle or any of our staff if you have any questions. Um, make use of the prayer printed in your bulletin, and we'd love to have you come partake on another day. Now in a second, I'm going to pray, and we can come down the center aisle, and there's a serving station over here uh, and right here. There is gluten-free, a gluten-free option available that way, so if you require that, you're going to need to go to that table over there. And then there is red wine, and there is clear grape juice. Please take according to your conscience. If you would, please pray with me. King Jesus, by your body and your blood, you have given us everything that we've ever needed. In this little foretaste of the kingdom, I pray, Lord, that we might taste your kingdom, that we might taste just how big it is, that it doesn't just encompass one small little area, but it encompasses the whole world. Lord, I pray that we might taste the forgiveness of our sins and the defeat of our most ancient enemy. We might understand what it took to make us truly human again. It took the sacrifice of your very life. And Lord, I pray also as we partake together that we might look around even this room and understand that you are uniting people together all across the world under one banner so that we all might again be called children of the living God. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would do this all by your power this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.